You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Leadership for Educational Equity. Hello there, Cindy and all you equity leaders. Yes, hello everyone, and hi Taylor. Thanks for joining us. For today at The Leader's Table, we've got an awesome conversation with political advisor and author Cecilia Munoz. Cecilia Munoz? If it's her, then it's definitely going to be a great convo. Cecilia is an absolutely inspiring leader. She's got a reputation for being a game changer on the topic of immigrant rights with her work at both Unidos U.S., formerly known as the National Council of La Raza, and during her time at the White House. That's right. And in the interview, we get the inside scoop about how her volunteering for the Obama campaign led to an unexpected job offer. Originally, she turned it down, but it took a personal call from the then-president-elect Barack Obama to convince her to accept the position on his team. Cecilia then went to serve as the director of domestic intergovernmental affairs and became the first Latina and longest-running domestic policy advisor in the country's history. Okay, I'm ready. Is there anything else I should know before we begin? I don't want to give away all the good details, but keep your ears open for some great explanations on how she kept herself prepared for the daily grind at the White House and for some heartwarming stories from within the Oval Office. I'm all ears, Cindy. Pull up a seat, everyone. Here's Jason Lorenz at the Leader's Table with Cecilia Munoz. Cecilia Munoz, thanks for joining the Leader's Table. Thanks so much for having me. So excited to hear about your story, the, the insight you have for leaders, for those coming up behind you, um, the experiences that brought you to now more than two decades of advocacy, service in the White House, uh, and, some, and working on policy issues that affect us in the future of the economy. Can we start at the beginning, though? Tell us, sure. where did you grow up? And what formed you into the advocate and policy shaper that you have been in your career? Well, I am a Midwestern girl. I'm the daughter of immigrants from Bolivia who moved to Detroit in the 50s, uh, right as the auto industry was beginning to take off. And they made their lives there. So I was born in Detroit and grew up in the area. So I'm a a good Midwestern Latina, which is a thing. Um, And I... I'm incredibly fortunate that not just my immediate family, but my, I had an aunt and uncle moved to the area and my father's aunt and the grandchildren she was raising moved to the area. So I grew up in this lovely, you know, wonderful, crazy extended family of Bolivianos. Um, So, you know, for there was a time when kind of every Latino that I knew I was related to, and that actually went on for a long time. That was true until I got to college. Um, so I grew up in a, in a wonderful immigrant family and with a sense, I think even as I was coming up that the American dream was, uh, possible for our family because my parents came to Detroit and I, I mean, I, I certainly entered public service with the consciousness that my job was to make that possible for everybody else. Um, and that, so that's. Like as far as I can remember, that's kind of been a driving thing for me. What's the pathway, though, from Midwestern Latina, um, surrounded by family, to 20 years of 
domestic policy advocacy leading in to the Obama White House, first directing the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs, helping the president uh, align an agenda with the states and other government institutions, and then leading the Domestic Policy Council. What's, what's that pathway? Um, it wasn't intentional, actually. When I uh, went off to college and then to graduate school, I was pretty convinced that my pathway, my, I, I knew I wanted to be a, a, in a service role of some kind. And I was pretty convinced that the kind of job I was aiming for was what I think of as a direct service job. So working as in some kind of organization that had, you know, clients coming in the door that, uh, and that, and an organization was helping meet those clients needs. And I started really as a volunteer when I was in graduate school, working at a legal services clinic, a Catholic church run, very small operation, providing legal services to immigrants, which I was drawn to because of my own immigrant background. And that turned out to be the beginning of a career in immigration policy, but which was unintentional. So after graduate school, which I did in California, I moved back to the Midwest. I moved to Chicago and found a direct service job and discovered that I wasn't as good at it, as cut out for it as I thought I was going to be. And I like to tell that story, especially to young audiences, because I think it makes a difference to know that sometimes you find your path by thinking you're going in one direction and discovering that it's really not for you. I could not let go of the faces and the names of people that didn't qualify for the program that I was operating. I just carried so much anguish about that. In fact, at one point I was interviewed by the Chicago Tribune and I described my job as being like watching people being pushed off a cliff knowing that you can only help save some of them, which are not the words of someone who is in love with her job. Um, and so I discovered I was not cut out for direct service, but I also in that job found my voice as an advocate. And I discovered that I was quite good at synthesizing what our clients were going through and um, you know, presenting that to the policymakers who needed to make changes in order for those folks to be better served. And so I, I found my calling quite by accident when I was intending to go in a very different direction. And um, that work helped connect me to the advocacy organizations in Washington. This is in the immigrants' rights world. Right at a time when there were local immigrants' rights coalitions forming around the country, I helped found the one that still operates in Illinois. And they were connected to groups, to national groups in Washington. And so I got to know one of those national groups was then called the National Council La Raza. It's now called Unidos US. And uh, when I was ready to leave the work I was doing in Chicago, I called them up and said, you know, I'm looking around. And they, I, I found out later, I found out only recently actually, that the guy who hired me, whose name is Charles Kamasaki, who still works there, um, you know, went out of his way to find the money to, to bring me on board. And so I came to Washington in 1988 as the senior immigration policy analyst for the National Council of La Raza, and I stayed for 20 years. NCLR is an amazing institution. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the work of, of advocacy for domestic policy, particularly for Latinos from 1988 for tw through the 20 years that you did that work. What were... What did you see? What did you learn? And what would you have done any differently? Uh, could you could you step back in time? 
So we were totally, we as Latinos, were totally invisible in Washington in 1988 when I got to D.C. We were still operating off of the very first census that actually attempted to count us accurately, which was conducted in 1980. That was the result of a battle by the Congressional Hispanic Caucus to make sure that we just had data to, to allow us to describe and quantify what we knew from experience about our educational status and our economic status and other things affecting our lives. So at first, a lot of the job was what I think of as Latinos 101, right? Explaining to policymakers in Congress, at the federal agencies, to people in the media, who the heck this community was, because we were, we were really not visible um, and not understood. And in, during the years that I did that work, we became the largest minority in the country. That happened in the 2000 census. Um, and that was very big news when it happened because so much of the country found it surprising. And so a big piece of the job was just explaining, this is a community which exists <laughs> and we all didn't just get here. And some of us have roots that go back 500 years. And by the way, the future of the country depends on at least in part on this community being successful. At the time we had like a 40% dropout rate from high school and you could clearly connect the dots, right? That unless we turned that around, it wasn't just that we couldn't succeed economically, the country couldn't succeed economically because of the rate at which we were growing. So a big part of the job was just explaining all of that. And because I was a specialist in immigration policy, we were also you know, in the weeds dealing with a lot of the same issues that we're still dealing with now because those are pretty ancient issues in this country. Yeah. Um, and of course, we're not invisible anymore. And the, sometimes the work is still about explaining who we are and the fact that we didn't just get here. But now this, the work is really about leveraging the considerable economic power that the Hispanic community has, the considerable political clout that the community has, and making sure that that's connected to a policy agenda that doesn't just advance our community and doesn't just close disparities that affect us. But, you know, the goal is really to be a force moving the country forward in a way that elevates equity for everybody. That, that's, I think, as a community, what we need to be about. Our story is unique. The circumstances which affect us are pretty unique. But um, we're part of you know, the movement that needs to drive economic equity in particular forward in the United States. And, I, I, you know, I feel incredibly privileged to have had kind of a front row seat in, in helping make that happen. You know, for years, the National Council of La Raza was synonymous with immigration policy, which I think is reflective of the fact that when people think of Latinos, Latinx people and policy, they think of immigration. But in reality, NCLR was always at the table on issues that were not, were not at the forefront, from economic issues to, ener uh, to energy issues to health care. Can, can you talk about some of the ways that a, a storied advocacy organization made sure it was at the table when... Uh, when it came to negotiating major pieces of legislation or at least influencing the conversation, what is that work of advocacy like at the federal level? Yeah, and, and under Raul Izaguirre, who was the president of NCLR for you know 30 years, 
Uh, we developed public policy capacity and we took it very seriously. It was first led by a woman named Emily Gantz McKay. She helped him develop it. And then it was led for many years by Charles Kamasaki, who hired me. And then, and then I led it um, for a long time. Um, we were incredibly serious about being data-driven because the assumption in Washington at the time, and it's still true, is that if you are a constituency-based organization, you are, that means somehow that you're biased, right? In other words, a, a white think tank could talk about Latinos and be credible, but when we talked about our own community, the assumption was we were making stuff up or that we were speaking from emotion but not on the basis of facts. So I was really trained at NCLR on how to do policy analysis in a dispassionate way and how to make a, a, an unequivocal fact-based case, data-based case, um, because the assumption was that we weren't going to be accurate unless we could really demonstrate that our, our numbers were unassailable. And that's, that degree of rigor has a lot to do with what, how we got to the table, not just on immigration policy, but as you say, on healthcare, on education, on policies affecting economic mobility. Um, the, you know, we got to the table because we earned a place by being accurate and by being pragmatic. We got good at seeing where is the opening to make progress and making sure that we were wedging that opening further open to make sure we made progress in our community in particular. So 20 years in advocacy, working across states and federal government, a young uh, state, a young senator from the state of Illinois is elected president in 2008. Uh, that White House needs a director of intergovernmental affairs. How did your transition into the White House happen? I met then Senator Obama shortly after he came to the Senate. And the reason I met him is because there was an immigration bill going through Congress, the same one, sadly, that we are still trying to pass. First went through the U.S. Senate in 2006 when he was a senator. And, uh, you know, I was one of several experts that he called in to brief him. Um, and, and that's really how I got to know him. And I, you know, I kind of drank the Obama Kool-Aid early because he was so unusual in that he would be, you know, briefed by a group of maybe five or six of us he would ask amazing questions. And then if he had questions later, he would just call you up and say, you know, I was thinking about this. Like, how do you explain this to people in Southern Illinois? And you could tell he wanted to do the right thing and he wanted to be able to explain it to his whole constituency. And I, 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 that's unusual behavior for a U.S. Senator. And I was, I was quite struck by it. So I, um, I volunteered for the campaign, but frankly, compared to a lot of the people I ended up working with, it's almost embarrassing to say that because I had a full-time job. I had two kids at home. So I helped with Latino outreach. I helped with policy advice, but I ended up working with people who like dropped everything and lived in their cars in Iowa. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't one of those people. I didn't work on the staff of the campaign and I was not angling for a job. In fact, I was very sure that you need good people on the inside of a new administration but that you also need good people on the outside of an administration. And I was extremely sure that I was meant to be on the outside. So I helped the campaign with no idea of going into government. I was quite challenged at NCLR. As I said, I was, my husband and I were raising a couple of daughters. And I was, and my mother passed away in 2008. I was not interested in turning our family's lives upside down. 
And I got a call from first from John Podesta, um, who was leading the transition, saying they want to talk to you about intergovernmental affairs. And I was very honest with them. I said, well, gosh, that's amazing. But I think, I think I'm not interested. And he said, you know what, just go in and talk to them. And I thought, well, the them in question is Rahm Emanuel and Jim Messina. And Rahm, was, who was the incoming chief of staff, you know, had a little bit of a reputation on immigration issues. And I thought, well, this is my chance to, you know, get the scoop. It's a great low risk interview because I don't actually want the job, but I can get information on what they're thinking about my stuff. <laughs> so I went into the interview and I had an honest conversation with them and told them, you know, I'm very honored to be considered, but I think this might not be right for my family. And Messina called me the next day and said, we have really bad news for you. We really want you to take this job. And I discussed it with my family. And I called the next day and said, I'm so honored. And if he wins a second term, I would be honored to serve them because my kids will be grown. But I don't think I can do it right now. And he said, I don't think this is over. And I thought, oh, of course it's over. There are a bazillion wonderful people who want these jobs. I've just turned it down. So I thought that was the end of it. And um, the day after that, my cell phone rang. I was driving my daughter, my younger daughter, to her allergy shots. And my sister was visiting from out of town, was in the car with us. And I look, and it's a 312 number. And I think, oh, shoot, this isn't going to be good. And I pull over, and it's Ron, who is making commitments about it being a family-friendly White House. And then he says, can you hang on for a minute? And the next words I hear are from the president-elect. He said, this is Barack Obama, and I'm not taking no for an answer. And that was easily the most over-the-top conversation I've ever had with anyone in my life. It was just complete. I still can't believe it happened. It was completely nuts. Mm-hmm. And I, I, honest to God, don't remember what I said. I remember every word he said, but I, have, I must have babbled. I don't know what I said. And I consulted with my family, which, you know, but this was in November. He had just won the election. And my husband, who is a wonderful man, who is not a drink the Kool-Aid kind of guy. He is a skeptic. Um, he's the guy when everybody is move, is running north, he's the guy who turns around and faces south and says, wait a minute, let's think about this. <laughs> and when I told him, he burst into tears. And he said, you're not being offered a job, you're being called. And he was immediately willing to turn our whole family's life upside down to make this possible. And so I went in to my astonishment. And to my further astonishment, I stayed all eight years. I did three years of intergovernmental affairs. And then I was promoted to be his domestic policy advisor. I was the first Latino ever in that role. And I'm the longest serving domestic policy advisor in our country's history, which Mm. is kind of mind boggling to me. Mm. In your book, uh, More Than Ready, Be Strong and Be You and Other Lessons for Women of Color on the Rise, you talk a lot about firsts and imposter syndrome and the elements of being the first to do anything and, and the, the internal struggles of feeling like we're enough. How did you experience those things from those first days in the White House, uh, the experience of interacting with other leaders in the White House and winning credibility over a very long tenure of shaping the president's agenda? 
Yeah. When I, the first day I walked into the West Wing, the day after the inauguration, I could name four Hispanic people who had ever served at a high level. Um, I knew all four of them, and they were the only four I knew of who had ever served. Um, and so there's a part of you that thinks, and you know, I'm like this daughter of Bol Bolivianos from Detroit. What the heck am I doing here? Um, and I think a lot of us walking into that building that day had that feeling. I mean, hopefully everybody walks in with a little sense of awe. Um, but I, you know, I, throughout my career, this is just true of me. And it's, it was true of the, the seven women of color I interviewed in preparing the book. We've all had the, this experience of this experience where you kind of think there hasn't been anybody like me or very few people like me doing this kind of work in this place. And I'm, you know, which makes you wonder whether or not you belong. And so you assume everybody knows stuff that you don't know, which of at some level is of course true. But I don't always remember that they don't know what I know, right? And that's in some ways, if there's any one piece of advice, which I want people and women in particular and women of color, especially to hear from my book, it's that what we bring to any table we sit at is really important especially if we're the only one like us at that table. And I had to work really hard to remind myself of that. And it helped a lot that the president had asked me to serve on purpose. So on those times when I thought, man, I don't know what the people sitting around this table think, and maybe they think I'm an idiot. And I'm questioning whether I've got what it takes to do this hard thing that we're doing. But this man I believe in also believes in me. So I need to just knock it off and bring it. Um, so that helped a lot. That's like a pretty good, you know, to have the president of the United States vouching for you, especially when it's Barack Obama is a pretty good thing. But the, the defining characteristic of the job of working in the West Wing is that it's really hard. And the, the decisions which get to the president are the really hard decisions that nobody could figure out. And my job for five of those eight years was to tee up those decisions for him and to make sure that he had the information that he needed to make a good call and to figure out which, which decisions could be made by his cabinet and which things needed to go up to him. And, you know, I think it's just objectively true that it's scary. And I think other occupants of this job, if they tell you that it's not scary, I think they're not telling you the truth. Um, and so I developed strategies for addressing fear. I, there's a chapter in my book about dealing with fear and I realized, oh, fear is actually kind of your friend because you know what it's telling you? That this is scary. <laughs> and once you recognize that, you can let go of it. Um, and there's a chapter dealing with doubt. And there's really two kinds of doubt, right? There's the times you doubt yourself. And there's the times when people in the room make it clear that they don't think you belong there. And that happened to me too. Um, and I developed strategies for dealing with that and discovered when I interviewed the other women of color for the book that they had experienced the same thing and they had developed exactly the same strategies. And I realized we're all going through this and we think we're going through it alone. And we don't talk about it, but we are independently devising the same strategies. So maybe we should talk about it, which is why I wrote the book. So you have the unique experience of the president-elect of the United States calling you to say, I appreciate that you don't want this job today, but you are 
the leader for this. It's very unique air, very unique space in life. Yeah. You get into the White House and still you experience other leaders who, who actually cast doubt. And even in the public space kind of uh, in some ways um, undermined your hire. Can you talk specifically about the strategies that you used to gird yourself and to, to move past that as much as you can share? Yeah. So you're referring to Bill Daly, who had been the chief of staff when I was promoted, who left about a month later and told a couple journalists who were writing books that my hire as domestic policy director had disappointed him greatly. And he um, gave the impression that perhaps I was an affirmative action hire who wasn't as qualified as the people he preferred for that job. And seeing that cost me a couple of years of confidence, frankly. Um, and, you know, I would sit in the room and think, well, shoot, if that's what Bill Daly thought, how do I know that that's not what everybody sitting in this room with me thinks? And um, as I mentioned, the other women that I spoke to had variants of that same experience. And we all did the same things. One is to just do the work, right, to just make sure you're prepared. And frankly, every person of color I know knows this feeling. Like you walk into a room, especially if you're the only one, feeling like I don't get to make a mistake, right? Because if I make a mistake, it's not just me, the human being, make a mis- making a mistake. It's every Hispanic person in America's mistake. And so I can't afford to make one. So you, you know, I took home fat briefing books <laughs> and, you know, did my homework. Um, and, and that's part of the reason the book is called More Than Ready. It refers to the fact that the world is more than ready for what we bring, but it also refers to the fact that we kind of overprepare. Um, so that's one strategy is to just make sure you that you can outshout the doubt by remembering, yeah, but I know this, I've got this. And that's, that's kind of, you lean back into that and you don't have to pay attention to the doubt. So that's one strategy. A second strategy is to relentlessly ask for feedback, which I did and still do. Um, it, makes a difference to ask it from people you trust, right? Who is, aren't going to hold it against you that you're asking for feedback. I've learned not to think of it as a sign of weakness, although I think that's what a lot of us fear. I think it's a sign of strength to be able to find someone that you trust to and go in the door and close the door, as I did many times with Valerie Jarrett, and say, man, this meeting didn't go well help me see what I couldn't see at the time. Like, help me, will you help me figure out why it went off the rails and what I can do better? And Valerie was someone I knew I could trust, not not just to be a cheerleader, but to just to be a truth teller, right? She was as invested in my getting it right as I was because she cared about the outcomes. And so she would tell me what I needed to know in order to up my game. And so I, I think it matters to, identify people in your life and in your work who will tell you the truth and ask for their feedback and not be shy about it. I want to circle back to one thing you were talking about earlier. Um, and thank you so much for sharing so much of that. I think those, those, the, your leadership insights are so important uh, and so inspirational to, to many of us. Can you talk a little bit more about 
raising up the hard questions to a president of the United States. Literally, some of the smartest people in the world working on things could not quite figure out the solution. And this is the decision for the president to make. You are at the at the linchpin of that, uh, assembling all that information and saying, here's the decision, Mr. President. What goes into that? Is that <laughs> is is that more than just the the data orientation you had practiced for twenty five years? What else happens to to even tee that up and make that an effective conversation? Well, the key is, of course, you work with a lot of brilliant people, uh, which I did. Um, pe- frank, people who, frankly, much more expert in a lot of areas than I was. Um, and so, and and actually, this is why there's a there's a chapter in the book on kindness and empathy. And that's where I really discuss what it took to be the president's domestic policy advisor, because it turns out the killer skill set was not necessarily my policy chops. I mean, I have policy chops. It's what my whole career has been as a policy person. The killer skill set turns out to be empathy and the ability to read a room to and to process information and deliver it in a way in which you you can't download everything that everybody knows in the hour-long meeting that you get with the president to tee up the big decision. You have to be able to synthesize what are the key things. And if there are two cabinet members who disagree with each other, what does each of them need so that they feel like they got to make their case? So that when he makes the decision, whether they won or lost the argument, they are on board and able to execute on the decision because they know they got to say their say and they know that the process was fair. And that was really my job was to have the discernment to figure out which discussions really need his input. What information do you put in the memo that he reads? But it can't be a 50 page memo because he gets so many of them. You know, it's a three to five page memo where you have to lay out an incredibly complex thing. What information goes in and what doesn't go in? so that you are confident he has what he needs. And then if it turns into a meeting, my job was to sit across from him and and manage the meeting so that everybody got to say their say, he got the information that he needed and the capacity to ask his questions, and that he walked out of that meeting with the information that he needed in order to make a good call. That required a certain ruthlessness on my part because you only have an hour. And you can't make him late to his next thing. So that meant, and I would start meetings by saying, you know, here's the time breakdown of how we're going to do this. And I'm going to interrupt you in order to keep us on time. The first time I said that, he kind of leaned over and he said, you're not going to interrupt me, are you? And I said, well, no, Mr. President, not everybody else. But you get dispensation to ask whatever you want to ask. Um, So it turns out the killer skill set is actually understanding policy, but really understanding what the human beings in this conversation need in order to succeed in teeing up a good decision. Your notes on humanity and kindness, empathy, remind me of a story that you tell about uh, working with the president, working for the president in 2014, um, as the issue of unaccompanied minors comes into the national spotlight. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was the hardest summer of my life. Um, so in about the, the spring of 2014, we noticed a large and unexpected spike in the number of children coming alone 
to the United States from Central America. They were either coming alone riding the top of a train or they were coming in the hands of smugglers who would literally drop them off on the other side of the Rio Grande where there are rafts and like push them on a raft and they would get to the U.S. side and look for the nearest Border Patrol officer. Um, it's just a harrowing thing. And uh, our job was to make sure those kids were receiving proper care. And we found out that the numbers were going up because they started piling up at Border Patrol facilities. And Border Patrol facilities are no place for children. And under the law, the government's job is to get unaccompanied migrant children out of those facilities as fast as possible and into shelter care that's more appropriate for children and then to reunite them with their families. That's the government's job under the law. And we, this, this unexpected increase, which was dramatic, meant that we didn't have enough facilities for these kids. Um, and it required an enormous scramble on the government's part, which I was in part responsible for. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of agonizing to make sure we were making the right decisions and protecting kids properly and managing the Congress, which had eyes on this and managing the media, which had eyes on this. And I am both a policy person with deep immigration expertise. And I'm, you know, I'm a parent, I'm a human being. And the thought of what it, what it must take to you give a smuggler a bunch of money and your eight year old, um, it's just, it's just unfathomable. And of course, it's gotten much worse since then. So this was hard for me. And, um, and we had an amazing team of people doing the best they could for these kids every single day. And I was part of that. But I, you know, examined my conscience every night to make sure that we were making the best possible decisions and the tools available to the government to deal with a crisis like this are pretty terrible. Um, and at the same time, the advocacy community that I come, on was come from was pushing the president to, um, they were concerned about migrant kids. They were also pushing the president to take executive actions on immigration, which he was reluctant to take because he wanted Congress to take those actions to make sure they were permanent. And there was this tough meeting in about June or July where I was sitting next to the president and my friends in the advocacy community people who were like family to me, were pushing him pretty hard, which is their job, right? They were pushing him on migrant kids. They were pushing him on executive actions. And, uh, you know, I'm a person who weeps pretty easily, and a tear fell down my cheek during that meeting, which I quickly wiped away and hope nobody noticed. And uh, later that day, I my assistant came into my office and said, you're wanted in the Oval. And, you know, those are words which always make your stomach churn because you don't know what's happening. So I went downstairs to the Oval Office and the president was standing there with Valerie Jarrett. And he looked up as I walked in and he said, hey, I just wanted to make sure you were okay. Are you okay? Um, and gave me a huge hug, which it still gets me that that happened because of course this is a man with the weight of the world on his shoulders and the last thing you want on earth is for him to be worried about you. Um, but he, he was, and that's the kind of president I worked for. And I treasure that memory because, I mean, every single person that I worked with was giving it their all every day. The team of people working on unaccompanied kids 
you know, was in there every day agonizing to make sure we were doing the right thing. The contrast between that and what's going on now, of course, is really staggering. And I have a lot of grief about it. Um, but I was able to look him in the eye and say to him, Mr. President, I'm searching my conscience every night to make sure I think we're doing the right thing. And I, um, I can tell you, I know we're doing the best we can and it's not enough. And you live with that when you're working in government and it's hard. Thank you so much for that. As you think about the current state of affairs of the domestic agenda um, and the issues that you're working on today um, yeah. at, at New America and, and in other other places in your in your your work life, what do you see as, as driving the conversation over the next two, three, four, five years? Um, understanding we're in the middle of a global pandemic a conversation about about racial justice and equity, uh, an unfinished conversation about uh, any number of domestic and uh, domestic policy issues, including immigration. Um, what what are the next years going to be going to look like, and what advice do you have for leaders coming behind you to become a part of the conversation? I think we are getting a really tragic civics lesson and how important it is for government to get it right, right? I mean, in the middle of this pandemic, people are dying, thousands of people are dying because the government failed to get it right. Um, that's why governing is so scary. Those are hard decisions. But frankly, these decisions are being made by people who are refusing to be guided by the science. And we are all paying a price for that. And the price is very, very steep. Um, that puts an enormous premium. And, and so I guess my advice to advocates, to people who try to fix it, to my daughters who are engaged in the, the movement as I am in, you know, trying to get issues of race and gender and immigration status, right? That half the battle is the policy conversation and the other half the battle is implementation. And it helps to think about that as you're formulating your demands. It's not enough, sadly, to have the pure position of what the world should look like, although that's really, really important to creating the space for change. You also need to be clear-eyed about where, what levers are available to the executive branch and what are not, what are in the hands of the Congress. And, you know, you have to be willing to fight not just for the presidency, but for the whole ballgame, for the Congress, for the state legislatures, for the governorships, for your mayor, for your prosecutor, you know, in your in your local jurisdiction. Every single one of those offices matters. And, you know, we own this democracy and we have come we're coming perilously close to breaking it. But we also have it in our capacity to fix it. But that means it's not enough to say how things ought to be. You also have to do your part in making them what they can be now in order to get there. Thank you. I want to move to our short answer sec uh, section. Okay. So these are short one minute answers on three questions. So number one, if you could snap your fingers to make one change for kids and communities today, what would that one change be? High quality education. For every kid, that includes you know broadband access and an awesome teacher who's paid what he or she deserves. 
that's what I would change. What's one skill, tool, or resource, maybe a life-changing book or a podcast that you wish every leader you know would know about and use? Digital skills, which is a very nerdy answer, but it's, I, I spend a lot of time on it. The, we have the same tools that have created you know, the apps that you and I are going to be addicted to next week that we haven't heard about yet are designed in a way by people who are thinking about how they're going to deliver their product or service to you and me. And they're getting to know us insanely well in order to make that happen. Policymakers can be using the same tools to find out who needs to access unemployment insurance and how are they going to access it so that we can deliver it well. Um, and those tools exist. We invented them in the United States. The work that I'm doing at New America on public interest technology is exactly about that, using the skills of technologists to deliver what policymakers are trying to deliver for people and using those skills to make sure we understand those people well in order to design what's going to help. What is a piece of advice you would give your 23-year-old self? Remember that what you bring into the room is badly needed there, that for all of the things that other people know that you don't know, you're bringing stuff that they don't know and have let that give you confidence. Okay, now this is our lightning round. These are three second answers. Okay. When you feel overwhelmed or lost, what helps you refocus? Meditation. What is one thing about the next generation of leaders that excites you for the future? They are standing up on racial justice and standing up for each other, it's amazing. Who is a hero that inspires your work today? I have so many. Um, I would, I'll name my colleague Tara McGinnis, who I get to work with every day and who is, you know, changing the world while also homeschooling two kids during a pandemic. Cecilia, thank you so much for your time, your generosity of, of insights. Uh, this conversation has just been wonderful. I wish that I wish that so many more leaders could see, hear, and, ins and be inspired by your unique brand of leadership and your hard-won insights. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for taking the time. I've enjoyed it immensely. Where can uh, can people find you on the internet? Uh, I am on Twitter at Cis Munoz. Um, is, and you can certainly find me through the New America website, newamerica.org. And I actually have ceciliamunoz.com. Excellent. And your book is available? Anywhere you buy or listen to books. I encourage people, if you're actually going to get the physical book, to do it from an independent bookstore, bookshop.org or indiebound.org are good places to order from because the independent bookstores need us right now. We'd be happy to, to share a link to, the, to buy the book in the show notes. Thank you. Cecilia, thank you again so much. Really appreciate it. That was Jason Lorenz at the Leaders Table with Cecilia Munoz. How did you like it, Taylor? Well, let's just say I've already got her book, More Than Ready, in my cart for checkout. The entire title is More Than Ready, Be Strong, Be You, and Other Lessons for Women of Color on the Rise. And I'm here for it. Totally. And if the book is anything like the conversation we just heard, then it's going to be packed full of wisdom. I loved how Cecilia pointed out that empathy and being able to read the room is something that can really be an important skill. 
Some people might not think of it as a skill, but for a position like she had, it's something that I imagine was a major asset. And then, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, her suggestion of knowing how to connect with people digitally is super important as well. It's pretty neat that she now has been able to make that her new focus in her work in the organization New America as the Vice President of Public Interest Technology and Local Initiatives. So much wisdom in one conversation. If you want to find out more about Cecilia Munoz, please check out the episode's show notes at educationalequity.org slash leaders table. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week, everyone. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review. You can also write to us at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. Our show is hosted by Jason Lorenz, myself, Cindy Centeno, and me, Taylor Stewart. The episode is edited by Nolan Peters and produced by Graham Forden. Thanks for pulling up a seat at the leader's table. Be well, stay safe, and until next time. Hey, everyone. My name is Tanya St. Julian, and I'm the chief of staff here at Leadership for Educational Equity. I spend a lot of time talking with our members And one of the questions that comes up repeatedly from people who are considering running for office is the question of how to go about raising money. Now, I'm not going to lie. Raising money is key to a successful campaign. And to make things a bit easier, we created a program called Spark Leadership that connects Lee members who are running for office with donors who share their same values. Spark focuses on ensuring that women, Black, Latinx, Asian and LGBTQ plus candidates are able to receive the financial support they need to overcome fundraising barriers and run strong, equity-focused campaigns. If you're interested in learning more about Spark or how you can leverage your own resources to ensure that more political leaders reflect your experiences and values, check out sparkleaders.org. The website highlights some of the candidates, their successes, and even goes deeper into the care we take matching candidates to donor values. Once again, check out sparkleaders.org to find out how Lee helps fuel change by empowering leaders.